brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss. So become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Serenity now, dear listeners. Welcome to the show from sunny San Diego. I'm Greg Carlwood, operating your trusty digital lighthouse in the vast darkness that is lurking almost everywhere you look. And if you use the term apocalypse by its original meaning to describe a great unveiling of such an extreme degree of magnitude that it breaks the world as we know it, I think it might be a fair thing to say at this point in the timeline that we are in an apocalyptic era. Because it wasn't that long ago that I would have been genuinely shocked to hear about these things that now seem fairly normal. The coordinated mainstream rollout of a UFO campaign to find the next boogeyman for the military-industrial complex, the cartoon character reality star president sounding off daily on Twitter, the leader of a blackmail-fueled Hollywood self-help cult backed by major power pyramid families that procures wannabe starlets and brands them with a hot iron has actually been found guilty and is now in jail, the quote-unquote suicide of Jeffrey Epstein in a maximum security prison under a supposedly tight watch has made a conspiracy theorist out of everyone, an unmarked mass grave of hundreds of children's bodies has been publicly unearthed at the Vatican, and a new Tarantino movie has come out that genuinely sucks. It's all a bit outside of what I'm used to, people, but I'm rolling with it, and I think we're due to talk about at least a few of these things today. Most importantly, the Jeffrey Epstein saga and his tangled web of connections, as well as Keith Raniere and the exposure of his own little cult. And while these sorts of stories shouldn't surprise anyone who's familiar with Jimmy Savile's dark history, the Finder's cult, Franklin scandal, or any of the other dark dust-ups that give us a glimpse into the child trafficking and blackmail networks that wield the real power in deep politics, you gotta admit, it's odd to see the karma come calling like it has. Well, here to help me step back from the edge of madness is a long-overdue returning guest who goes by the name of Recluse and covers these complex things with nonpartisan nuance and a conspiratorial clarity that is a bit rare to see these days on his blog, Vice Up View, a not-so-safe space dedicated to exploring the vast Fordian realms of mind control, deep politics, sacred geometry, synchronicity, occult film and music, the supernatural, the extraterrestrial, the multidimensional, and other high weirdness in all of its many forms. 
You might remember our last show detailing Nazi occultism, deep state rituals, and the Nine, which is largely considered a top-shelf THC show in the archives, and I already feel the magic coming back. So let's get into it. The conspiratorial connection chronicler and eight-legged esoteric agenda exposer, Recluse. Good to have you back. How the hell are you? I'm doing great. It's definitely awesome to be back on THC. I seem to remember our last show went pretty well, so hopefully this will also be informative for your listeners. (laughs) Absolutely, man. I am quite psyched. The blogs that you've posted about Epstein and his vast network of high-level connections, as well as your Nexium coverage, have both been top-notch. And I know THC listeners are hungry to have us get into such things, but when legal proceedings are going on, which has been true in both of these cases... I like to let the story play out before we dedicate a show to something that doesn't have an end. And while I hope this isn't the end of the investigations, Epstein is apparently dead and Keith Raniere was found guilty of sex trafficking, forced labor, racketeering, and wire fraud, so at least we have a little closure. But the other factor is partisanship. I can't tell you how many times an Epstein researcher has been recommended to me only to spend time digging into their work and given up because it becomes clear they're ignoring the connections that make their political team look bad, something we should all be past at this point. But really, these networks of child trafficking and blackmail, they know no bounds, do they? Oh, no, absolutely not. And I mean, that's the big thing that Epstein should have highlighted to everybody, which obviously it didn't. What should have been drawn from it was that it definitely was bipartisan in nature. I mean, definitely Epstein was more well-ingrained with the Democratic establishment. There's no denying that. But I mean, clearly he also had some very conservative contacts as well, both in the U.S. and the U.K. There are actually some people in the infamous black book of his that also turn up in Brexit as well. So it's definitely a multi-spectrum of politicians and different politics that were represented in Epstein's black book, no question. (laughs) Yeah, and I also think it's pretty obvious that Epstein didn't kill himself. He was definitely suicided the day after a major document dump of thousands of pages in one of America's most secure facilities, only a week after the first attempt to kill himself off, at a time when guards were told to leave for maintenance or were sleeping, depending on which article you read. And surprise, surprise, the security camera malfunctioned. It's about as bold as it gets, isn't it, man? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And then what was it? He was taken off of suicide watch after a prior attempt on the 23rd after only six days. I think there's actually some dispute now that he was his attorney who had been pushing for him to be taken off of suicide watch to boot. So, yeah, I mean, it's almost comical of just how ham-fisted all of this has been. I definitely think there was probably a deliberate intention to try to further stoke the division in this country with the, you know, quote-unquote suicide, which was such obvious bullshit. <laughs> Indeed, indeed. And some people are speculating over if he's really even dead. I've seen some posts that try to make the case that the body that was briefly shown on the stretcher was actually Hillary Clinton's brother, Tony Rodham, who did just die a few weeks ago. But I don't know about that. What is more interesting to me is that they called in Dr. Michael Baden for the Epstein autopsy, and he's the same guy who was in charge of the JFK and MLK assassination investigations also testified at the O.J. Simpson trial, was involved in the Michael Brown investigation, and is married to one of Phil Spector's main attorneys. So he seems like the guy you call when you need a high-profile case to get a quick whitewash and go the way you want it to, you know? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. 
yeah, I hadn't even actually looked into that one yet, but I mean, it's hardly surprising that they would pull out some character like that for this quote-unquote investigation. Yep, a gatekeeper of sorts. Okay, to get into this thing, there's still a lot of confusion over who Epstein was and how he made his money. It seems pretty clear that he was a major player in the child trafficking business and that the underlying purpose of his operation was compromising billionaires and the political elite for someone. I'm sure having a home in the aptly named Virgin Islands, a known tax haven, is part of the scheme, but he's not one of these dynastic names, you know? How do you assess Epstein broadly, what his role was, and who he really worked for? Well, he clearly seems to have been groomed, I would say, for this role for some time, and I think a key clue was something that one of my readers recently shared with me, KTV, that he had been originally brought into his first job, I believe it was some kind of teaching gig at like an elite academy or something like that. The name escapes me, but the guy who brought him in was David Barr, who happens to be the father of William Barr, the current U.S. Attorney General, who's overseeing this investigation. And more importantly, from the perspective of my research, this David Barr was also a former OSS officer, the Office of Strategic Services, which was the predecessor agency to the CIA during World War II. And definitely, based on what I've been uncovering, there's a lot of background from this kind of old OSS, old boy network that sort of hovers in the background of this, you know, expansive network that's been going on for several decades. But I mean, Epstein goes out, he gets kind of tapped by Barr. Then by 1987, he encounters Donald Trump, which as far as I can tell was their first meeting. And I know Vanity Fair just had an article they published, I believe, just a few days ago that detailed how he met Ghislaine Maxwell. It was apparently around 91, 92, shortly after her father had allegedly committed suicide under equally dubious circumstances, let us just say. <laughs> and apparently it was Trump who had urged Epstein to get into contact with her, too. Of course, Ghislaine would go on to become his so-called madam and definitely, I think, was the source of some of his really upscale contacts, especially in the British establishment. But, I mean, Epstein definitely seems like someone who had been maybe talent scouted by this network, you know, when he was relatively young and was eventually brought into more of the inner workings by Trump at some point in the late 80s. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I would just add a little bit to that first point, which is, yes, Epstein was a college dropout in his 20s, and he was hired to teach at Dalton School, which was originally called the Children's University School, oddly enough. But he was hired with almost no qualifications by the headmaster, Donald Barr, who is the father of William Barr, the Trump-appointed attorney general who was overseeing the Epstein case. I mean, that's a pretty strange circle of events just right there. Absolutely. And it spirals out to insane proportions, of course, as you know. And, you know, what's been most eye-opening about your coverage of this to me and how far you go in linking certain people and other blackmail networks is that the crux of all of this and similar scandals like it in the past is that we have this person collecting a blackmail file on the rich and powerful, and the subtext of everything is controlling that file. Because if you want to take the country in a different direction than it's been going for the last few decades, which seems clear over the last couple years, then you need to free up the compromising material that keeps these political figures in line, or you need to get it yourself. As Gordon White put it in his recent newsletter, 
If you're one of these kid fuckers, expect a phone call because you probably work for someone else now. (laughs) And I think that kind of nails it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's definitely a control mechanism. And this was something that sort of initially came. Well, I mean, I'm sure there might be other instances, but one of the earliest I'm familiar of were some of the revelations concerning P2, the you know infamous Italian Masonic Lodge that was involved so heavily in Italian deep politics in the late 70s, early 80s. But I mean, one of the prerequisites for joining P2 is that you essentially had to turn over compromising material that you had both on yourself and associates of yours to the Grand Master Gelly so that they would essentially serve as control files. So yeah, I mean, this has definitely been a big part of this, and it's not just in the United States. It's clearly in a lot of other Western nations and probably you know even beyond the West, but this is essentially how this system has been run for many years now. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so many... Other people connected and not connected have gotten wise to how to set up stuff like this. I mean, that is the Nexium cult in a nutshell. From what I've read, Allison Mack, who was his right-hand madam, there's always a female sidekick because the female can get the women in line and they feel a kinship to another woman. And of course, that's betrayed. But it's a pretty useful tactic. And from what I understand, when people would get into the inner circles of Nexium, you had to send compromising material to a Dropbox folder. She'd give you the link and she'd be like, okay, put some stuff in there and then we'll move you up to the next level. It's the same story. Compromising material that you'd be very embarrassed if it got out. You don't really know what you're getting into. And once you've done that, you're in their pocket forever. Absolutely. And then, I mean, the other kind of curious aspect that we, I think, maybe got a glimpse of from the Epstein case as well were these black projects that sort of hover in the background. Of course, it's very interesting that Epstein had so many ties to the scientific community and many you know, leading scientists like Stephen Hawkins and so forth. And that definitely raises some interesting questions, especially in regards to his Mexico property. A lot of these allegations that he was very interested in eugenics and transhumanism and so forth. And this has been something that as you just kind of brought up Gordon White, the great Gordon White of Rune Soup, who has really compellingly argued for years now that these illicit funds that were generated through drug trafficking and the like had possibly been used to fund some of this black research, this research that you really not want the public to know about. In the case of Epstein, his former attorney even said that he had a keen interest in genetic manipulation. And obviously, this is something that if you were to even try to do it in a public forum or something, it would take years to probably even get you know legislation passed allowing you to do it. So a guy like Epstein with his resources, he would have been in a great position to do this or at least sponsor this kind of research on the QT, so to speak, with nobody being aware of it. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Excellent points. And I definitely want to get into that Black Project stuff. I mean... It is some of the wildest material in this saga, but I wanted to do a little more foundational stuff first and maybe run through some of the names in Epstein's Little Black Book. Of course, it doesn't necessarily implicate these people in any crime, but it ain't good to be in that book. What names did you see? How far and wide does this stretch? I mean, it definitely stretches all across the United States and the British establishment. There's even, you know, some Israelis and so forth in there. It's definitely a far-reaching network of contacts that Epstein had, no question. Obviously, there were quite a few interesting names there. A lot of people probably would focus on the 
you know, ones linked to the entertainment industry. You had some ones that were rather expected, I suppose, in a sense. Kevin Spacey, Michael Jackson, Ralph Fiennes was kind of an interesting one there. He's a distant relation of the royal family. Courtney Love, who I'm sure you're aware of, there are quite a considerable amount of conspiracy theories surrounding her and the death of Kurt Cobain. You have Bob Weinstein, the brother of Harvey Weinstein, who appears to have been a sexual predator for any number of years. He had forced quite a few women to commit sexual acts with him as part of his job overseeing Miramax. And then, of course, you have the Roths. Some of the you know real big political dynasties, the Rothschilds, have representatives in the book, specifically Evelyn de Rothschild, who's one of the major ones. And also another associate of the Rothschilds family who had previously been implicated as a pedophile, who was Peter Mendelssohn, who had also been a big factor in the Labour Party in the UK. He had worked with Tony Blair and Gordon Brown and their administrations. He was part of a very progressive think tank known as Policy Network. There were also multiple members of the Kennedy family, I believe almost half a dozen members that were present in Epstein's Black Book. Henry Kissinger's in there. I mean, absolute pinnacle, you know, political sections, movements, and so forth. Kissinger is definitely one of the most connected elites of the 20th century and beyond, no question. You've got David Koch, part of the famous Koch family, who have been a major backers of the libertarian movement in the United States. And then, of course, there are the inevitable British connections. You've got William Astor, part of the storied Astor family. There's Mark Getty, who's part of the Getty family that originated in the United States. Members of the Goldsmith family, the Hambro family, the Somez family. I mean, these were all major players within the UK for many, many years now. So certainly, Gurry goes to the upper echelon, I would say, of the establishments in both the United States and the United Kingdoms, based on the names that I've seen in this black book. Yes, indeed. And I was just crossing them off my list as you were naming people, but the only other ones I'd throw in there, Alec Baldwin, Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, the nephew of George Soros, Prince Andrew, as you said, members of the Astor family, the Cecil family, a couple of Gettys for good measure, and that Ralph Fiennes guy that you mentioned, I didn't know who he was, but he played Voldemort in the Harry Potter movies for anyone who wasn't sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he also got an Oscar nomination for The English Patient back in the day. He's definitely been in quite a few films, though, but certainly it's definitely interesting that he has that ties to the royals, since it seems like Epstein had made some contacts, obviously, with Prince Andrew, but who knows who else might have also crossed paths with him over the years. Yeah, it's a hell of a list, man, for sure. And if we're going to talk about connections, obviously people have been talking about the Epstein-Clinton connection for a long, long time. Bill Clinton has been on the Lolita Express about 20 times. They took a month-long trip to Africa together in 2002. Apparently Epstein played a big role in launching the Clinton Global Initiative, which was an offshoot of the Clinton Foundation. Also, Elaine Maxwell, who was Epstein's number two in command, his madam as they say, she was a guest at Chelsea Clinton's wedding. So yes, there is something here, and I don't want to downplay all that, but I just consider Bill Clinton to be one of many depraved sex addicts that are in the Epstein circle, and I wanted to list those connections because I want to be nonpartisan, but the Clintons are really just a washed-up power couple at this point. Middle management in a vast criminal evil empire of sadistic creeps, yes. Relevant in 2019, not so much. And 
there are a lot more connections, or at least just as many, to this current administration. As you mentioned, the bar one is curious, but there's others that need to be looked at, wouldn't you say? Oh, absolutely. And I mean, yes, the Clintons still flabbergasted by just the obsession that so many people on the right have with them. And in saying that, I'm not trying to argue that the Clintons aren't monstrous and evil and so forth, but I mean, certainly... Their importance, to my mind, has been grossly overstated for years now. It seems really that the Clintons were very much a kind of propped up by the Bush dynasty, which had already been, you know, I mean, wealthy and powerful for nearly a century by the time they kind of hooked up together in Mena, Arkansas back in the 80s during Iran-Contra. The Clintons, I mean, not to say that they haven't accumulated their own power base in recent years, but they just, you know, are not, in my opinion, at the same level as some of the other families that have been present in there. And then on top of that, a lot of the evil Clinton mythos was really sponsored by publisher Richard Mellon Scaife. Going back to the Clinton Chronicles, the documentary from the 90s that he put up the funding for, and Richard Mellon Scaife came from the Mellon family of Pittsburgh, which is just, you know, one of the absolutely pinnacle dynasties in the United States. They're up there with the Rockefellers, the Morgan family, which really hasn't even been a player for decades now. The Mellons are a big deal. And, you know, this is the kind of people who were doing a lot of this anti Clinton conspiracy theories for years now. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yes, I agree with you. Clintons are dirty. Clintons are not great, but they are small potatoes in the big scheme of things, especially in 2019. And to talk a little bit more about Trump administration connections, there is also Alex Acosta, who Trump had appointed to labor secretary. And he was the one who gave Epstein a slap on the wrist in his previous 2007 case in Florida. So... If you've helped Jeffrey Epstein, maybe you got him a job at a college he wasn't qualified for. Maybe you oversaw his slap on the wrist from that previous case. Chances are, if you've helped Jeffrey Epstein, you might have a place in the Trump administration, it seems. Absolutely. And then, of course, Acosta tried to argue that he had given him a slap on the wrist, essentially, because he had been informed that Epstein was some kind of intelligence officer or something to that effect. So, yeah, I mean, definitely Acosta had showed a real willingness to look the other way. And I would say that looking the other way is probably something of a prerequisite to serve in the Trump administration. <laughs> and this is another thing. So people who are holding on to this Trump superhero narrative always like to point out that Trump banned Epstein from Mar-a-Lago eventually. But... That seems to be after Epstein recruited at least one minor from Mar-a-Lago. And if you've read the incredibly graphic court documents from the Katie Johnson case, you might get more insight into why Epstein and Trump had a falling out. Have you looked at that? No, I haven't. What was that? Oh, God. So in 2016, Katie Johnson filed a case for damages from both Trump and Epstein from abuses she suffered, and it's pretty detailed. Earmuffs, kids. But to pull out some quotes from the court documents, the plaintiff Katie Johnson alleges that the defendants, Trump and Epstein, subjected her to extreme sexual and physical abuse, including forcible rape, during a four-month span between June and September of 1994, when the plaintiff was still 13. She goes on to describe multiple forced sexual encounters with both of them. She used to have to give Epstein naked massages, and 
with Trump, she talked about how after he would get off, he would often berate her for her bad sexual performance at 13. Doesn't sound too far out of character for the guy, but it gets really bad when later it says that Trump and Epstein argued in front of her who would get to pop the cherry, and Trump called Epstein a, quote, Jew bastard. Eventually, (laughs) Trump did take her V-card against her will, And when Epstein found out, he was pissed, so he raped her as well, then beat her ass, then kicked her out, saying they'd kill her family if she talked. This is all in those court documents, and this was events that happened in 1994, and Trump banned Epstein from Mar-a-Lago 13 years later. So assuming this court case has even some truth to it, he was probably banned over something like clashing egos rather than Trump's moral outrage at what Epstein was doing. Well, that, and also when he was finally banned, I believe around, it was 07, right? Yeah. That was also around the time that Epstein had started to have his initial legal entanglements. So obviously, if you are an arch pedophile, it probably would have seemed prudent at the time to distance yourself from Epstein as much as possible before people started looking too closely into that relationship. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Agreed. Man, and there's just so much to talk about with these connections, but... I want to maybe pivot over to Nexium a little bit because there are a few ties that bind the Epstein circle with the Nexium circle, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mainly through the Ron Affman family of Canada, who were, of course, the Seagraves heirs, I believe, right? Yes, yes. Yes, okay. So, and the Ron Affman family had already had some strange ties to these kind of odd new agey type movements going back to the late 70s, early 80s. The wife of Charles Braun and his sister, Philip Braun Lambert, had actually been financial patrons of Ira Einhorn, so-called unicorn, who had actually been a close associate of Andrea Puharic, who was one of the Chandlers of the Nine, also a guy who was probably a CIA scientist, an artichoke, and so forth, and many other people associated with Puharic. A lot of the support had actually come from Charles Brunaffman's wife at the time, Barbara Brunaffman, who was quite taken with Einhorn. She had actually continued to insist on his innocence. I should point out, Einhorn was eventually convicted of murdering his longtime girlfriend, had essentially stuffed her body in a trunk in his apartment in Philadelphia, which was finally discovered after the stench from the rotting body had alerted neighbors. He had fled the United States and was a fugitive for many years. I think he was finally apprehended in France or something like that in the late 90s. Edgar Brunaffman was the brother of Charles Brunaffman and Phyllis Brunaffman, who had been supporters of Einhorn. His daughters are the ones who would later go on to support the Nexium cult. And, of course, his son, Edgar Brunaffman Jr., also appears in Epstein's Black Book. So certainly that leaves some interesting connections there that you can kind of ponder. (laughs) Yes, yes. And a lot of these names I do only read and I rarely pronounce, but you've been saying Bronfman and I've been saying Bronfman. You're probably correct. (laughs) I have no idea. But this Bronfman guy, yeah, his daughter was involved in Nexium and the funding of it. And his son is in Epstein's Black Book. I mean, (laughs) doesn't get dirtier. No, it does not. And then, of course, you have kind of the specter of Roger Stone lurking in the background of all of this, too. Of course, Stone had been, he had some kind of involvement with Nexium going back to around 2007, 2008. 
there's been a lot of dispute about this. Stone is trying to distance himself, but I've seen some accounts that he had actually got Nexium to put up almost $20,000 to New York Republican Party in anticipation of the elections that were coming up in 2008 or somewhere thereabouts. And of course, Stone himself has some kind of interesting connections to sexual blackmail. He's generally now considered to be the person who outed then New York Governor Elliot Spitzer, who was having an affair. He was involved with some kind of prostitution ring or something like that. So Stone is another guy who has a lot of these kind of contacts. He's shown up in these, you know, kind of shadowy blackmail entrapment programs. Of course, he has a longstanding relationship with Donald Trump going back to the late 70s, early 80s when they all seem to have kind of come into the orbit of Trump's former attorney and political mentor, Roy Cohn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Roy Cohn is a massive figure in all this, but the Roger Stone connection to Nexium is really interesting. I didn't know all that much about it. I mean, he's probably trying to get close enough to access that compromising Dropbox folder we mentioned, but also I didn't really know he was involved in outing Elliot Spitzer in that scandal. And I wanted to quote the blog here where you kind of sum this up really well. And you say, Roger Stone, paid by Nexium, had funneled at least $20,000 to the state GOP. The heirs of Seagram's fortune are devotees. And Richard Mays, a Clinton friend and one of Hillary's top fundraisers, has also taken so-called intensive classes with Keith Raniere. And then you go on to say about the timing of the scandal, and you say, actually, I think the timing of this scandal is quite telling. Nexium appears to have established a working relationship with the Clinton family at some point in the last decade, and eventually donated around a million and a half dollars to the Clintons and other Democrats during the last election. Roger Stone, who also handled political donations for Nexium as well, would have most surely have been aware of these ties. Is it possible he also encouraged the cult to ramp up the donations leading up to the election so that he could once again blow the whistle as he did on Elliot Spitzer at some point? I don't think these revelations are coincidental at all. With the ongoing deep state civil war as vicious as ever, the control files amassed by Trump's lawyer, Roy Cohn, and his associates over several decades increasingly appear as the sword of Damocles the orange one holds over his opponents, ever threatening to topple the entire house of cards. And there you have it, man. Well said indeed. I definitely think this network kind of rushed in, got as much of this compromising material as they could, and this is why Trump is so bold. I still think he's just a figurehead for a deep, deep network, but this is why he's so bold. Think about all the stuff he said during the election, even invoking 9-11 at some times when it came to criticizing Bush's brother. And then when it came to Ted Cruz, he invoked the fact that his father might have been involved in the JFK assassination or was a pal of Lee Harvey Oswald. He's got dirt. He's got a lot of dirt. And he isn't shy about insinuating that publicly. No, absolutely not. And that to me is definitely, I think, why there was so much concern about Trump being elected. Because, and I mean, in a sense, he was really the first president we've had who was a true insider's insider since George H.W. Bush. And even in that case, George H.W. Bush was kind of an anomaly in that particular era. And this sort of goes back to the whole thing with Nixon. Nixon was very much an insider's insider. And of course, there had been kind of a dust up between him and 
Richard Helms, the director of the CIA, when Watergate started to break out. Nixon had kind of made the offhand comment to Helms that this might blow back and bring up the whole quote-unquote Bay of Pigs thing, which Helms had just absolutely exploded over. But after that, you had, you know, Nixon being taken out and then Ford became president. And ever since then, it seems like there had been a process where presidents were essentially selected as people who were not close to the inner circle of power. And they had been kind of subtly groomed before they ascended to the presidency and as such were probably very dependent on their backers. I mean, I.E. Jimmy Carter, he was essentially a governor from a minor southern state. Ronald Reagan was a former actor who may well have been in extensive stages of dementia by his second term. Clinton, like I said before, definitely had some connections, but he was probably at best a middle manager. George W. Bush definitely came from a very well politically connected family, but most of the evidence suggests that he was essentially a drunken playboy for much of his life up to that time. He probably was being managed by Richard Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld. And then, of course, you have Obama, who was a community organizer. This is definitely a far cry from Trump's background, a billionaire, a guy who had been in the inner circle of some of these, you know, major figures and these black operations. And certainly, I would say a kind of parallel to Nixon. Nixon, of course, had been deeply involved in the national security processes when he was the vice president under Eisenhower during the 1950s. He saw a lot of things. And I do think when Watergate was blowing up, there was certainly some concern that Nixon might spill the beans on something such as the so-called Bay of Pigs thing, which generally many people assume he was a reference to the Kennedy assassination. But after that, there seems to have been a consorted effort to keep insiders away from the presidency. Usually when you had an insider in the presidency, he was serving as the vice president, i.e. George H.W. Bush during the Reagan years and Dick Cheney during the Bush two years, maybe to some extent Biden during the Obama years, with the one glaring exception obviously being George H.W. Bush when he was the president during the late 80s, early 90s. But Bush was, of course, you know, a former CIA director. I'm guessing that they probably felt he was a lot more stable than Trump, <laughs> at the very minimum, which might have been why he was acceptable in that position. But generally, Trump is not, you know, the kind of figure that they've been looking at as the president of the United States for several decades now. And I do think that was a bit of a concern to people when he was finally elected. You know, this is a guy who knows things. You can't necessarily bully him the way you could some of his predecessors. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I love that breakdown. They would select people for the presidency whose hands were tied. They were on the outside, but connected enough. They were these people who their hands were tied, so they don't get any ideas when they land on the throne. You know, they can't use that power position against their backers because they don't have the information. Or they just don't have the resources. I mean, of course, the Clintons, Obama, you know, some of these guys made some pretty good money when they're in the presidency. And now they have some considerable resources at their disposals. But that really, you know, was not the case when they were elected. Whereas Trump is obviously independently wealthy. So I think that's also another kind of factor that contributes to his power base as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we talked a little bit about the Bush power network. And I definitely think the Clintons were just kind of lieutenants in that network, but their power seems to, of course, waned a little bit too. Are they connected in this at all? I don't see a lot of names that cross over to the Bushes. 
There is obviously Ghislaine's father, Robert Maxwell, had employed John Tower, a former U.S. senator, as a lobbyist for him, essentially, in the late 80s. And Well, there's some dispute as to how close he was to Papa Bush. Some accounts I've read that they were quite close. Other accounts I've read essentially allege that Bush won to despise Tower privately for many years. But regardless, they had both had a lot of dealings with each other for many years. Tower was also from Texas. I believe Bush actually had served as his campaign manager or something to that effect. But there were some ties to this network going back to the late 80s through Robert Maxwell. But yes, it doesn't seem that the Bushes were necessarily at the forefront of this, though certainly George W. Bush was the president during Epstein's first legal brush, and it was Acosta working for the Bush White House who had essentially given Epstein a slap on the wrist. So I'm assuming there probably are some kind of connections there if we were to dig deep enough. But after the Bushes essentially petered out in the 2016 election, you know, they really haven't been on anybody's radar for this type of thing at this present time. Right, right. I figured if you dig enough, you'd find some connections because there's just too many people in that network. They're touching everything. There's got to be some crossover. And you mentioned Maxwell. That's another one of those names. I was talking to my wife about this, and she watches a lot of news, especially when mainstream news crosses over here. And she says it's Ghislaine, like Elaine from Seinfeld, but with a G in front of it. Ghislaine. All right, we can go with Ghislaine. It's one of those things, man, because we're doing this a lot of this research in text form and not crossing over into the spoken word. I should probably mention, too, I really don't listen to podcasts or watch any TV. I know I get flamed a lot for my pronunciations on this, and I'm really sorry, guys, but I only really see these names in, you know, printed text, like you're saying, so mm -hmm. I don't have a lot of point of reference for how these are pronounced, like some people who are more into the podcasts and the YouTube videos and, you know, things of that nature, but trying my best. <laughs> yes, no worries. And your research is great, regardless of pronunciation, but... Ghislaine Maxwell, who is the madam for Jeffrey Epstein, the co-pilot, the female co-pilot that we so often see, her father probably deserves a little more attention because he was kind of like a Rupert Murdoch media mogul figure who also was a spy for, it seems, several different organizations. What can you tell us about him? Because he's pretty important in probably where Ghislaine got most of her tactics. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's definitely very compelling evidence that Maxwell had ties to the Mossad, to the KGB, and MI6 at various points during his illustrious career, so to speak. But certainly, you know, going back, it seems like he was originally recruited to this sort of network of very right-wing British intelligence officers, city bankers, and so forth in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War. The guy who really set him up was a man named Sir Charles Hambro, who had been the director of the Special Operations Executive during the war. And the Special Operations Executive, the SOE, was essentially the agency that the OSS was based on rather than MI6. Specifically, the SOE was really engaged in a lot of dirty tricks and assassinations, sabotage, all of that type of stuff. But it was also housed in the Ministry of Economic Warfare. So it tended to operate a lot through front companies and things of that nature. It was essentially designed to be 
almost totally off the books. And in fact, the British, you know, essentially denied the existence of the agency throughout the Second World War. And it was very hard to prove because everything was essentially in the deep private during this time. Now, the SOE was disbanded like the OSS at the end of the Second World War. And it seems like a lot of assets for it, the OSS and British Security Corporation, which was an organization that was based in the United States to essentially aid the U.S. getting into the war effort on the side of the U.K. But all of these networks seem to have been essentially transferred to a private company known as the World Commerce Corporation. The WCC, I think, was founded in 47, but some of the predecessors have been around for a few years prior. But the directors of the WCC were William Stevenson, who had headed the BSC. He was intrepid. He's the man that a lot of people think Ian Fleming based James Bond upon. He was the Canadian director. The American one was William Donovan, the founder of the OSS. And the British one was Hambro, Maxwell's you know, patron, the guy who essentially set him up with Pergamon Press, which was his first major publishing house. So... He lends Maxwell a rather obscene amount of money. I think it was like 25,000 pounds, which was a lot of money in the UK in this time in, you know, 46, 47, when the country was essentially devastated from the war. Maxwell uses the money to set up this publishing house, which specifically specialized in scientific publications. And through this network, he started to come into contact with a lot of, you know, prominent Soviet scientists and so forth. And this is also when he started to come into contact with the KGB. And this obviously lays a lot of questions as to who exactly he was working for. Was it the British? Was it the KGB? But it seems like ultimately Maxwell was really an opportunist. I'm guessing he probably played both sides against one another at various points, but there's no question that he continued to receive a lot of support from this British network that it originally had rallied around the WCC in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War. And he would have a lot of connections to this network throughout his career. Another one was Sir Robert Clark, who would become a big figure in the Mirror Group in the 1980s. He was also a veteran of the Special Operations Executive. And another really interesting guy that Maxwell had come into contact with in the 80s that I just confirmed a few days ago was a man named Norman Lamont, Lord Norman Lamont. Lamont would eventually become the chairman of an organization I've written quite extensively on known as Le Socle. This was an organization that was kind of formed as an offshoot of the Bilderberg Group in 1952-1953. The founding members were guys like Conrad Andenawa, Anton Panay, Jean Violet. This network was very close to a lot of reactionary Catholic orders like the Knights of Malta, Opus Dei, and so forth. By the 70s, it would bring in a lot of very right-wing British Tories who had been close to this old WCC network in the 40s and 50s. The Circla is also an organization that I've chronicled in my blog was extensively involved in these pedophile networks that we've been discussing. Le Circla has shown up several of its members in the fallout from Marc Dutroux, the Belgian serial killer. They had members who were involved with the Franklin scandal in the United States. They were actually one of the chief supporters of Colonia Dignidad in Chile, which was, of course, ran by the infamous pedophile Paul Schaefer. So La Circla has been linked to these pedophile networks in multiple continents for decades now. And Norman Lamont was actually the man who initially outed the Rothschild affiliate Paul Mandelson, who showed up in Epstein's Black Book as a pedophile I believe, going back to the late 90s. So 
Maxwell, Robert Maxwell, knew Lamont. He had been in regular contact with him since at least the mid-1980s. And their last meeting that I've been able to confirm was sometime in February of 1991, which by this time, Lamont was almost surely a member of the circle. He would become the chairman in either 96 or 97. So, you know, that's a very interesting connection right there, especially given the fact that Le Circle has had so much involvement in these pedophile networks for decades now. And Lamont actually appears to have been one of Robert Maxwell's principal contacts within the British government during the Thatcher era. Jesus, man. <laughs> it does go deep. And you've just done so much digging on this. It's really impressive. And you did mention the term playing both sides. And I had a curious question for you of how do you assess the Q crowd these days, the QAnon material? Obviously, there are a lot of followers in that space. They definitely cross over into my space quite a bit. But I'm pretty skeptical of that material and that crowd. And even though I would admit that some of the things that are in the Q data dumps did reflect real things, especially when it came to Epstein. He was a precursor in kind of laying out some of those questions as to who to look at that was going to go down. So obviously, the Q person seems somewhat connected. Maybe it's something they could put together just with some digging. But I'm of the opinion that there are no good guys. Just because one side wants to expose a vast network of entrenched power doesn't mean they have good intentions. Well, absolutely. And I mean, I'm kind of reminded of another affiliate of Le Circle, a British MP. I think his name was Julian Lewis, maybe John Lewis. He was also a Knight of Malta. But this Lewis fella had come into contact with the British magazine Scallywag, which had done a considerable amount of research into these pedophile networks during the 1980s that were present in the UK. Lewis was able to get a hold of their material, I think it was maybe through a lawsuit or something, I can't remember off the top of my head, but he gets these files that Scallywag had you know, compiled on these pedophile groups, and he essentially suppresses everything related to the Tory party that Scallywag had dug up, and he only you know, uses the material that had been found on the Labour Party. And this definitely, I think, is kind of playing into what you're saying here. Of course, you could even point out to Norman Lamont himself, he outed Mandelson, who was a big figure in the neoliberal establishment, very close to the Rothschilds and progressive politics. But I'm sure Lamont is probably well aware that, I mean, a lot of Tories, maybe even more Tories, honestly, than labor politicians, were involved in these networks. But as far as I know, Lamont is not talking about anybody from the Tories. Mm -hmm. It's like these people are involved in this espionage and counterespionage, and they're picking off members of different circles, but they're all kind of interlinked to some degree. And just because you're picking off your particular opponents in the power network, it doesn't mean you're a good guy. That's just the thing that it's the simplistic thinking that I'm seeing in conspiracy circles that is really just annoying to me right now. We should be better than that at this point. Well, absolutely. And I mean, it's also just really hard to say, even if somebody is, you know, for instance, Democrat or Republican, I mean, where, you know, exactly are their loyalties ultimately lay? Yeah. I know, you know, one of the names that came out in the court documents that were filed the day before Epstein committed suicide was a Democratic senator named George Mitchell, I believe, who was one of the more recent names to have come out. 
And I just recently found out, actually, by a fluke last night, that Mitchell had been a speaker for the Circla very recently, actually, at least as far back, I think about 2012 or something like that. Which is interesting because, as I kind of pointed out before, Le Circle was essentially the, probably still is essentially, the right's answer to the Bilderberg group. It has that same kind of influence and sway. But here you have George Mitchell, who was a fairly prominent Democrat, who was being brought there to address this really reactionary right-wing network. So, I mean, what exactly is he, you know, really believe in? (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. So also to step back to something you had said about Maxwell publishing primarily scientific journals, this is interesting because you also mentioned at the beginning the black projects that seem to be connected, and we know that Epstein's black book and Inner Circle included a lot of the scientific community, which is odd, but that is another rail. I mean, they got Hollywood, they got the political people they got the dynastic families the money people and they're also going for scientists and of course maxwell's daughter is epstein's co-pilot in all of this so if epstein is involved in some of these black projects it wouldn't be a stretch to think that he had similar ideas to maxwell's father but What do you think about that? What do you make of the Black Project's connection and this tie-in with the scientific community? Well, don't question. I mean, to me, this is one of the more, you know, interesting aspects that's come out with Epstein that I kind of alluded to earlier. But in the case of Robert Maxwell, there's also kind of an interesting overlap with Epstein's New Mexico property. By the late 70s, early 80s, Robert Maxwell had definitely forged very close ties with the Israelis and Saad. And... During this time frame, the early 80s, the Mossad had managed to steal a copy of Promise, which was a software developed by a company named Inslaw during the late 70s, the early 1980s, and it was originally marketed to the Department of Justice. And Promise was almost kind of early search engine, if you will. I mean, this is back in the 80s when a lot of these files were starting to finally be you know, converted over to computers. And it was a way for people in the Department of Justice and other you know, entities to search these files and to look for records and things of that nature. Now, the CIA had put a backdoor into this so that effectively, as it was sold to other governments and intelligence agencies across the world, they could keep tabs on what all was being said in these files. Now, the Israelis stole a copy of Promise during the early 80s, and they inserted their own backdoor into it. And the man that they effectively tapped to market it was Robert Maxwell. Maxwell was able to sell this enhanced version of Promise to various African nations. He sold it to several of the Southern Cone military dictatorships, such as Chile. And though his final coup de grace, really, with this was when he sold it to the Los Alamos National Laboratory in New Mexico. He was actually brought into contact with Los Alamos through John Tower former Texas senator that we had just discussed earlier, who was close to George H.W. Bush, towered arranged for Maxwell to meet with the Los Alamos people. He goes there to Sandia, which is actually the laboratory where a lot of United States' classified nuclear research was conducted. He managed to sell it to them by 1984, 1985, thereabouts. And suddenly this gave the Israelis access to, you know, many of the United States' most closely guarded nuclear secrets. So that's certainly, you know, a major 
coup, to put it mildly, I mean, from an intelligence perspective, I mean, to get the, you know, I mean, nuclear secrets of the United States, it's been a fortune one for Israel. So Los Alamos National Laboratory, bringing this back to Epstein, is only about an hour's drive from his Stanley, New Mexico ranch. What was it called? Zorro Ranch or something to that mm -hmm, effect. Mm -hmm. And that was also the location, apparently, where he had been considering doing these kind of bizarre, you know, genetic manipulations and things like that. Apparently to father the human race with his DNA or something to that effect. Yeah, yeah. He wanted to impregnate hundreds of women, keep them there in a small shack, and then spread their babies out around the country, I guess, or the world to spread his superior genes to make, I guess, what an egomaniac would think are superhumans. Essentially, yes. So, you know, and I mean, definitely it's very telling to my mind that he would set up this alleged site for these projects right there, you know, in a close distance to Los Alamos, which is the site of a lot of black projects and what have you to begin with. And of course, New Mexico in general, there have been rumors for years of underground bases and things like there. I don't know how substantial any of this is, but there's no question that, I mean, at Los Alamos, at Kirkland Air Force Base, a lot of black projects are tested there. A lot of research for this kind of stuff goes on there. And then in the case of Epstein's property, the Zorro Ranch, there was a tract of land that the state of New Mexico essentially owned right smack dab in the middle of Epstein's property. There's a bizarre structure there that looks like it might be some kind of underground facility. There's never really been any explanation why exactly the state of New Mexico would own this tract of land in the middle of Epstein's property or what, you know, this facility that's on the land is or what its purpose was. So it definitely raises to my mind a lot of very strange questions. And as I was kind of alluding at earlier, there's no question Epstein probably had a lot of illicit funds available to him from sex trafficking possibly from money laundering and so forth, he could have potentially put up money to bankroll some of these black projects that, for whatever reason, legal or otherwise, could not really officially be done at this point. And certainly it's very curious that the site that he picked for this, you know, these potential projects was right next to a very, very highly classified research facility of the U.S. government's. <laughs> Indeed, man. This is definitely a hotbed of connections. And as I learned from you on the blog, Epstein bought this land in New Mexico from a three-term New Mexico governor named Bruce King. And the King family still owns a lot of the surrounding land. And Bill Richardson, also a governor of New Mexico, is heavily connected to Epstein or talked about in that black book. And it's just odd that he's so connected with the New Mexico leadership and that New Mexico owns this land in the middle of Epstein's land. You show a satellite photo on the blog that is just, as you say, bizarre. It is a circular structure, a circular metal structure, looks like a silo, but yet it is down on the ground and it definitely insinuates some kind of opening to something that's under there. Otherwise, they would not own it and it's just very weird very very weird yes and like i said especially when you you know kind of factor in the long-standing allegations going back to the early 80s that there are some kind of you know underground facilities in new mexico spread across the state but certainly i mean new mexico is definitely the kind of red hair or i shouldn't say red herring but the real oddity within the you know locations that epstein owned property in 
I mean, the fact that he would own you know property in New York City or Paris is rather obvious. These are, of course, major cities. I mean, for the global elite, same thing would go with London. The U.S. Virgin Islands is a major tax haven for a lot of the same elite network. So it's easy to understand why he would want properties there. I mean, this is definitely where the Jet Set VIPs like to go and unwind, so to speak. But New Mexico is not an area that's really obvious in that sense. But there's no question that New Mexico is, you know, very much at the focal point of a lot of black projects that the U.S. government has been sponsoring for many years. And that, to my mind, is easily the most compelling reason as to why Epstein would want to put a major facility out there in the middle of nowhere, essentially. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, this here is a great way to kind of wrap this up. So to jump back to the timing of these last few parts of the Epstein story, I really like this lengthy quote where you talk about this New York Times piece about Epstein's DNA spreading desires. You write, Make light of this story and details like Epstein's desire to freeze his penis all you want, but these revelations are on an entirely different level. Did Epstein or someone close to him, like, say, Robert Maxwell's daughter, Ghislaine, leak this high weirdness to the Times as part of an insurance policy in the aftermath of Epstein's first reported suicide attempt? Obviously, it didn't do the trick, as he was dead ten days later. But his death coming after documents from his legal woes were unsealed rather than after the Times piece hit may constitute an expert sleight of hand. And this is assuming Epstein was the leak. A certain former madam of his is still alive and present and has largely avoided any legal entanglements up to this point for her role in his operation. Did Ghislaine learn from her father about what type of insurance policies to keep on hand? Certainly she was the only family member to insist that her father was murdered in the immediate aftermath of his death. And <laughs> I think that's really well put together. And maybe Ghislaine and Epstein's lawyer are really at a decision point on what to do with any potential material they have at this point. If anyone had some kind of insurance policy to be released upon his death, it would be these figures. And if they were to release it, it could be quite damaging for them. And maybe that is why Maxwell has kind of avoided any prosecution either, even though she's termed the madam. Yeah. In fact, as far as I'm aware, I don't even think they know where she's at right now. She's essentially just kind of disappeared. I guess a bit like what's his name, Joseph Misfrut or Misfrut, whoever the central figure was in Russiagate. Yet another person who's probably sitting on a treasure trove of invaluable information about these scandals and the U.S. intelligence community with its billions of dollars and agents across the world and so forth apparently can't find them or nobody wants to talk to them. You know, I mean, it's just like, really? Right, right. And so as we're wrapping this thing up, do you see either the Epstein scandal investigation or the Nexium one continuing on? I mean, there's a lot of rings of culpability that could be looped in here but maybe it has been cauterized and will just be quarantined where it is do you think any of these investigations will continue to rope in any of the big players or are we done here i think it's quite possible i mean i do think that things are going to die down in a couple of weeks you know now after the initial kind of headlines have come and gone and the revelations have been made but it really would not surprise me if stuff starts to come out again going into the 2020 elections. 
if anything, I mean, that was one of the surprises I actually thought about Epstein being arrested in 2019, because, I mean, certainly I think that Trump probably is not going to be damaged by anything that comes out about Epstein, but quite a few figures within the Democratic establishment may, may well be. So 2019 seemed a little premature for some of these revelations to start coming out. But I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if a new phase of the investigation or something to that effect starts to ratchet up again going into 2020 when we're getting closer to the election, certainly. Mm, mm, yes, could be for sure. And it's going to be an interesting election cycle just compared to what we saw in the last one. I'm sure things are ramping up as the Empire scrambles to stay relevant because it seems like this snowball has gotten about as big as it can before it hits the fan. And we'll see. I mean, this might be a collapse of the Roman Empire 2.0 in the next few years because there's a lot of people saying economically, politically, when it comes to people's confidence, any metric, it's not looking good for the U.S. Empire. Absolutely. I mean, or possibly even more horrendous, a civil war or something mm. akin to what we kind of saw in France in the early 60s when essentially the special operations forces tried to overthrow de Gaulle. That's rather ominous in light of the fact that a lot of Trump's support within the intelligence community appears to have come from the Joint Special Operations Command. And if history repeats itself in that sense, I really don't think we want to see what will happen in this country if a lot of, you know, rogue figures from the Delta Force or SEAL Team 6 try to overthrow the government. Oh, <laughs> no, no, man. And you're just so knowledgeable. There are many layers in the conspiracy cake. You know them all. You are my cake baker of choice, man, and I really appreciate you being here. We got to call it in somewhere, but remind the people how to get to your blog and some of the other subjects you cover there, because it's vast. Yeah, I've covered a lot of stuff, and I mean, certainly if you're more interested in these kind of right-wing networks, which really don't get a lot of play, especially in you know U.S. conspiracy theory sites and what have you, definitely check it out. I've got extensive series on the American Security Council and Le Cercle, which you know, I've mentioned quite a bit in this interview, and also the World Anti-Communist League and so forth. And also, I mean, in addition to parapolitics, as you may have gathered, I've also written a bit on UFOs and a lot of other high weirdness and so forth. Website is found at visupview.blogspot.com. Visup is V-I-S-U-P, and then just view, V-I-E-W, all one word, and then blogspot.com. And also, I've actually begun work as well on a book. Nice, man. It is actually going to go into Epstein. I've actually had to be a little selective in some of the stuff I've told you, but definitely I'm aware of some other links that I've maybe kind of slightly hinted at in this interview between Profumo and Epstein and so forth that will definitely be explored a lot more in the book and also this kind of network that you start to see emerge in the in New York City in the late 70s, early 80s that included Trump and Murdoch and later Robert Maxwell and so forth. So yeah, hopefully I can have that wrapped up by the time the 2020 elections. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And that was going to be one of my closing questions for you is that it seems like you got to have a book coming out at this point or you got to get a Patreon or something. I mean, you're great at what you do. Like I said, I'm trying. I mean, the next step will definitely be trying to find a publisher. Jason Horsley has been kind to kind of give me a little help with that. But obviously, if you are a publisher or happen to know one, I would be very interested to hear anything you have to say. I'm definitely a pretty prolific writer, and I do anticipate that the book should be ready sometime next spring. So definitely, at that point in time, I will be looking for a publisher or something. I'd even 
possibly considered crowdsourcing it. I don't know. But I mean, I definitely think I could do a, quite a compelling book on this whole netherworld that would hopefully try to provide more of a coherent, you know, order to everything that we've discussed as well. Because I know with all these, you know, names and dates, it's problematic to keep everything, you know, track of everything. And that's one of the reasons why I really wanted to do a book that could kind of provide a chronicle of all these events and places and people and so forth. Very cool. Very cool. I don't think you'll have any problem getting that published. I might even put you in contact with Chris Milligan from Trine Day, who I think is one of the best suppliers of high quality suppressed books, as he likes to say it. I say conspiracy books, but you know. Now, Trine Day was actually definitely the one of the first publishers I thought of approaching because I am a big fan of Trine Day as well. I mean, definitely the books by Nick Bryant, Peter Lavendia, so forth. I mean, I'm a very big fan. Uh, H.B. Alborelia, I can't believe I almost forgot Alborelia, but Trine Day is great. I mean, that would definitely be a publisher I would be very interested in. I mean, it would definitely be quite an honor to join their illustrious roster of uh, other authors that are represented by Trine Day. Heck yeah, man. You'd be in good company for sure. But Ah, oh, this has been a great time. Very much appreciative of all the work you do. You're one of the good ones. Keep it up and stay safe out there, man. Yeah, hopefully. Oh, the humanity. Recluse! The triumphant return of the man who knows the plan. And let it be known, there are no good guys, guys. Let that be the lesson of the day. They have all kinds of disagreements and strategy differences and even some conflicting goals and ideologies. But the only thing they really agree on is that we are the dumb cattle that they have to manage. <sighs> but we did it. We got back to current events, got back to good old Conspiracy 101. It has been a little while now. I've just kind of had a desire to avoid politically charged shows for the past few months. It's not that I've been scared off, not that I've been talked to or anything really, except the fact that I have political fatigue. Something like 5G or GMO politics, like we talked about with Dr. Farrell last time, are a little bit different. Those are more like campaigns. Really, it's that I've been burnt out on Trump anything for months now. I guess that's the real issue. And since I'm not really seeing it slow down or anything, I can't seem to get away from it. I guess I should just give up the idea of a tolerance break. But longtime listeners of this show should have been familiar with the Jeffrey Epstein name long before this latest round of the news cycle. We've talked about him and Pedo Island and the Lolita Express many times, but never to this depth, of course. A lot of the time, THC is trying to look at something that only a few people are looking at, and this is a case where everyone under the sun is covering it in some regard. So it's a different kind of challenge to do it differently, or really just better than the rest, or at least as well as. <laughs> I did do a lot of digging on the side, and I had a little bit to add outside of the scope of Recluse's work. But if you read his blogs on this, it's pretty clear that he's a great candidate to be our pedo guy. Or Epstein guy, I should say. Jesus. But I also felt it was time to get into Nexium. Granted, it definitely played a backseat role here, but there is a little connective tissue between them, and I definitely intentionally got that out in the first hour so we could have such a heavy-hitting title. 
Nexium does deserve more attention, but I'm kind of waiting for the books to come out, I guess. Although there are some other things in the works. We'll see how they shake out. But another challenge has been finding a nonpartisan perspective on the Epstein case. I looked at more than a few people, spent hours checking out their stuff, and then had to decide, well, they're too one-sided, or they rely too heavily on the Q shit. But connection-wise, the William Barr thing is just the craziest to me. In this big, wide world, his dad gives Jeffrey Epstein his first real job, when he shouldn't have. So how does William Barr's dad even know this guy? Maybe Epstein was on to the blackmail game so early that he just said, Hey, where's the Dean's house? Okay, there it is. I guess I'll just film him until I get something interesting. I mean, it's possible. There has to be some explanation, but I literally just made that up. I just want to be clear. But he did get this first job somehow. He didn't just walk in off the street to a school that used to have the name Children's University, by the way. But William Barr's dad gives Epstein his first job, and then he's attorney general of the goddamn United States overseeing this same guy's child trafficking case. Talk about a weird coincidence. And I wonder how many listeners out there have actually watched The Blacklist, but this whole blackmail file element has a real Raymond Reddington feel to it in terms of there being a big hoopla on the surface. But the real layer to watch is whoever swooped in and got that blackmail data and then got out of Dodge, just like Red Reddington would do. Also, I mentioned that weird Clinton in a dress painting. I guess it's a painting, not a photograph. There's also a George W. Bush one of him throwing paper airplanes over a collapsed Jenga tower. You should see it. I don't know about that Clinton one, but I do look at that George Bush one and think, Well, I'd hang that up in my office, actually. Can't say the same for any of that creepy Podesta art. Anyway, I have to thank Recluse again. He knows a lot about these lesser-discussed political networks and scandals, and it all came bubbling to the surface, even though he's been doing this research for a long, long time. I've been really looking forward to the release of this show. I think it's a return to form for us a little bit. And when we have a show like this that's about recent events, I always want to get it out quickly and add any important new news to the wrap-up section. But the only noteworthy thing I've heard since we recorded is that the autopsy showed Epstein had broken bones in his neck that are consistent with hanging or strangulation. So, I guess the experts cracked the case, guys. We can all go home. Something happened to Jeffrey Epstein's neck. We know that now. It has been confirmed. Ugh, just the stupidest story ever, right? There was also something interesting posted on the Higher Side Chat subreddit about Epstein's connections to the AI community, which might be worth a look if you're hungry for more. But let's talk about Higher Side news. I know a lot of people are still frustrated, and I still have a team working on the problems. And I can say things are looking good. I've had a lot of meetings with the company I'm working with, and we're a lot closer to solutions for some of the big, widespread problems that we're having. More so now than we were 48 hours ago. I know a ton of Plus members are writing me about inactive subscriptions, and they should be. You know, you're paying for this thing. But the 
access cycle is out of alignment and I'm trying to wait for a site-wide fix before I spend another day doing a couple hundred manual adjustments and emailing people individually, which is how I spent my weekend. I don't mind, but these are manual changes. I want something systemic so that this doesn't recur. One piece of very good news is we are 100% sure that new signups won't have a problem. It's only people who were ported over, which is like 99% of people. But hey, one thing at a time. And long story short, at this point, I have the fix. I found the solution. It's just too big and important to be in my hands. So I'm currently settling on one of the skilled Stripe developers that I've talked with. And before the next show, our Plus database should all be back and in working order on the new site. I realize this subscription database issue is affecting the old site as well, but I think for the vast majority of people, the reason I didn't pull that down yet, that site, is because it's the insurance policy. It's the thing we use while we're still waiting for all the kinks to be worked out of the new site, and then I'm going to switch it off. The other big issue and big priority is plus access via RSS on the new site. People don't want to come to the website and log in and listen every time. Although the site does look good on mobile, you can download the MP3 directly. So you're not in a terrible situation, but people want to plug in that feed to their podcast apps and have no problem. We're getting on that. The team is still trying to figure out what it is about the server configuration that isn't allowing RSS feed access for plus people. But once that problem is found, it should just be a flip of the switch. Maybe we have to turn off a firewall or something. But that's another thing on the list that I'm hoping is fixed in the next 48 hours. And the last of the big issues for THC is being removed from the iTunes store entirely. And that's something that the company I've been working with is confident they can fix. Apparently, they're going straight to the top and trying to get our old listing and all those important reviews back in order. So, to quote the Big Lebowski, nothing is fucked and it can all be made right again. And we're clawing our way back to dominance more each day. I am really sorry for the trouble and the confusion and the delays but I just make the show and I try to outsource the tech side of things. And when they screw up, I'm kind of left holding the bag and I don't even know what to do with it. But we are making progress and we've also fixed a lot of the small, simple things on the new site too. The contact form works now. All of the sign up for plus language magically goes away when you're signed in. That'll help you determine what version of the site you're looking at. And the free and plus shows are playing for people as they should be, both on the front page slider and in the actual post themselves. If I'm wrong, let me know. But my tests seem to have worked out flawlessly. The seam was a test episode. I guess this is test number two. It's a lot, guys. <laughs> people have asked about a joint session, and I am really so slammed with this stuff and trying to get all the August shows out in 10 days. 
that I wanted to say we're not going to be doing one this month, but I changed my mind. We'll do one. It'll be Wednesday the 28th, 7 p.m. Pacific time. There's a place on the new site for the date and time of the next joint session, and I'm going to play around with the back end and see if I can update that spot on the website. Wednesday the 28th. I'll talk to you then, and hopefully we'll be in a much better place with everything. Maybe I'll be fielding questions about the new infrastructure. Who knows? I'm sure that'll be entertaining. But I hope you liked this show, if you happen to find it. As always, I'm doing my best here, and the Plus Show offers a whole lot more. In the second hour, we talked about Epstein's links to transhumanism and his strange beliefs, labyrinths, temples, and other weirdness on Epstein's properties, trying to decode Epstein's temple, the Perfumo affair, and tracing back that blackmail file a few decades. And of course, Roy Cohn and Roger Stone. It's crazy they didn't make it in the first hour, but we talked about so much. And finally, we added a segment about how the blackmail file relates to ufology. And I really liked that section, as well as the section with Nassim about ufology, as well as the section with Walter Bosley recently about ufology. If you don't have Plus, you missed all of that, because... It does take that long to ease into those waters if it's not the reason the guest came on the show. But they all seem to be circling around the same general ideas that we need to look at all this with a discerning, skeptical eye and not get caught up in UFOs on CNN, oh my god! You know, chill out. But you know this. Anyway, I'm getting out of here. Do check out Recluse's writings, and big thanks for listening and for all the patience as we sort out these issues. Check out the new site, and if you see any problems, let me know. We're fixing them. We got a list, and I want to make the most of it. So let's kick the tires, you know? I'm already overwhelmed, so let's bring it. (laughs) And I will be nose to the grindstone trying to rebuild my conspiracy podcasting empire. And until next time, I'm getting out of here. Your move, pedo protectors, culture deceptors, and blackmail data collectors. Your fucking move. Have a drink and a smoke. Listen to the cast. We shine a shiny spotlight. Put criminals on blast. The pinstripe men of morning. And families of finance DuPont, Windsor, and Rothschild The kids don't stand a chance The kids don't The kids don't stand The kids don't stand a chance I said the kids don't The kids don't stand The kids don't stand a chance We're looking for the answer To questions never asked So we come to the Carwood For the higher side chats The pinstripe men of mourning And families of finance DuPont, Windsor, and Rothschild The kids don't stand a chance The kids don't The kids don't stand, the kids don't stand a chance I said the kids don't, the kids don't stand, the kids don't stand a chance
business We tried to get a glance We're working on the numbers Resistance must advance The pinstripe men of mourning And families of finance DuPont, Windsor, and Rothschild The kids don't stand a chance The kids don't The kids don't stand The kids don't stand a chance I said the kids don't The kids don't stand The kids don't stand a chance The kids don't The kids don't stand The kids don't stand a chance I said the kids don't the kids don't stand, the kids don't stand a chance